This is the Langpreneur podcast where each week we interview experts in the language learning industry who will show you how to turn your passion for languages into a profitable online business so that you can create an independent career doing something you love. I'm your host, Jan van der Aan. Hey everyone, it's Jan here. You are listening to the Langpreneur podcast and good that you're tuning in because we have another special interview today, exclusive interview for you today here on the podcast. Um, Yeah, how are you doing? At what stage are you in your language business? That's the main question that I have for you. And what are your ambitions for this year? Feel free to let us know. I would love to interact with you guys more on social media. You can do that on Instagram. You can also send me an email or at info at langpreneur.com and I do always get back to you personally. Um, yeah, for me personally, well, lots of um, lots of changes actually here in uh, in March. It's already March. My God, time flies. Um, so we just moved to a new house here, which was kind of a bit stressful, but it was a really nice house and uh, it took us like two years to construct it. We're now finally living here. So that's really good. And in two weeks from now, actually well more likely to be only a week from now we only we're actually getting our second child so whew, lots of changes and then by the end of this month we have our first Langpreneur business breakthrough workshop coming up which is going to take place in berlin so if you signed up for that event really looking forward to seeing you there and if you couldn't make it this time then make sure to go to our website uh, go to the event section and check out which other events that we have you later this year. Um, For example, we're gonna organize, um, like every year we organize a mastermind retreat. First time this event took place in Tenerife, Spain. Last year we did one in Croatia. And this year the mastermind retreat will take place in Crete, in Greece. So if you're interested in coming, make sure to go to our website, check it out. Registration for that event will open up in a few weeks from now. So, yeah, well, about today's interview. So today's interview is with Gabriel Weiner, the founder of the language learning app Fluent Forever. And he also wrote a book with that same title. Um, Gabriel has raised over $1.7 million with crowdfunding campaigns on platforms like Kickstarter. And, you know, you might think, whoa, 1.7 million, that's, that's a lot of money. But in this interview, actually tells us that he already spent three and a half million developing the Fluent Forever app. So in this interview, we, you are going to learn why developing apps, sorry, why developing apps is often much more expensive than people think. Um, some of the things that you need to take into account if you want to develop your own app and we're going to talk about some of the strategies that um, that Gabriel used to raise so much capital on Kickstarter. This is a really, I really enjoyed this interview um, because then uh, Gabriel is really open about, about everything actually, about the finances also, um, about how he managed to do all these things, writing his book, you know, raising all the capital for the app um he's very transparent and i think that there is a lot of i think there is a lot of value in this interview here so i hope that you enjoyed the interview let's get started hey gabriel welcome to the langpreneur podcast could you please introduce yourself to the people who don't know you and talk a little bit about your background in languages I sure can. Thank you for having me. So my name is Gabriel Weiner. Um, I am the founder of Fluent Forever, also the author of that book. And uh, gosh, uh, there's, I think, lots to talk about. But I I wrote a book, it turned into a bestseller. And then we created an app that that basically riffs up the method uh, in the book and and helps people use that method in a way that doesn't involve learning how to use Anki and, and doing a lot of the busy work yourself. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your previous career as an opera singer. Or are you still working as a, you're still performing or not anymore? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm a happily XXX singer. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, my, my initial background in this uh, was, was not just on the singing side. I used to be a mechanical engineer and that was really my passion was uh, problem solving and science. That was always my thing. Um, but I also had this singing habit and that turned into a double major. I, I did mechanical engineering and, and opera performance 
um, and then ended up really pursuing the opera thing. I spent about 10 years uh, trying to build a career as an opera singer. Um, I learned my languages for that reason. And uh, I found that, you know, you learning how to pronounce a language and you learning how to actually speak in it are, are night and day uh, in terms of what you do as a singer. Uh, you, you'll generally find that if, if someone is really inspiring you, it's because they actually know what they're saying. <laughs> and not, not just in translation, that they're able to think and, and really breathe in that language. And, and so that started becoming a critical thing for me. And, and I think I started enjoying even more than the singing itself was becoming fluent in multiple languages and finding new ways of thinking. And so that, that's really what spurred this, this new career of, of focusing on, on language pedagogy and, and, and helping people actually learn these things. Mm. How do you learn all these languages as an opera singer? Do you study them by yourself or do you have like coaching or how do those opera singers do it? So there, there is, there's some support in opera when it comes to pronunciation. So that's a thing that is somewhat standardized, but in terms of the actual, um, like you'll spend a, a half semester working on French diction. And they'll teach you the international phonetic alphabet. That's pretty standard. They'll talk about what that means in terms of how something should be placed in your mouth. Um, but that's about it in terms of formal education that opera singers get beyond just go to language class, which is going to be the same language class that anyone else does. Um, the only other input that we would get as singers that other people don't is that we'll, we'll get assigned things. So you'll get assigned this particular role in this French opera. And then you may well have a coach who will go through the pronunciation of that with you and help correct you and line by line so that you're saying something and they'll be like, ah, you're saying, you know, uh, and, and we want, you know, a little bit more in there. So can you just give me some sue? And you're like, sue? And they're like, no, 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 not sue. sue. Uh, and so you get that some, some direct feedback from a coach, uh, which ends up being invaluable. That's, that's a huge, huge asset that, that we end up getting. How many languages do you have to be able to, to, well, to speak or to sing as an opera singer? Is there like a minimum on, required? Or <clears throat> really? There's no minimum required. You can, there are specialists. So you can end up being just a particularly good Germanic singer. And you're mostly singing German repertoire. And you can become, I mean, if the 1% the of the singers who actually make it in careers, like they can potentially get a great career doing German art song, for instance, or German opera. And then... Uh, they can even become famous and then someone can say, hey, you, you're so great. Can we have you sing something in French? And you can just do it terribly because <laughs> you're a specialist in German. And you see this even with uh, you have some of the famous, you know, the three tenors and stuff singing uh, stuff in English where they can barely pronounce it correctly. And it's sometimes it's like kind of funny. They have beautiful voices, but they can't quite do the language aspect. And like that's it's common. You, you generally won't find singers who are very comfortable in every language that they sing. Mm. Could you learn all these languages? Because you speak quite a few languages. Um, did you learn all these languages within the opera scene? Or did you also study by yourself, get some real-life practice by uh, traveling to another country, conversations with friends? Um, yeah, where did you actually reach the level at where you became comf comfortable in, the, in all those languages? So the opera side, I don't think, like the opera side helped when it came to pronunciation and motivation for me, uh, but it didn't help in terms of education. I, I feel like the, the standard education stuff that's offered for opera singers is pretty similar to everyone else's and is not very good, um, which is not, that's not on the language teacher's front. That's not that they did a bad job or something. It's that the systems are broken. So um, like I learned, I successfully got to my first couple of languages through immersion. I went to uh, Middlebury, Vermont is a magical place. I mean, they, they've done something that is, uh, I think, unique, uh, the Middlebury College uh, specifically, um, where they don't just have immersion, immersion courses, they have immersion courses that, that everyone is committed to, which is a rare thing. Um, I found that generally most immersion courses, you'll find that, that it's stressful to be forced to speak a language that you're not comfortable in. And people respond to that stress by not speaking that language. Like they go back to their native language uh, and they find little enclaves in a group. You have, you know, 30 people in a group doing an immersion and you will find someone who speaks your native language generally. And you'll just kind of hang out with them and speak your native language because it's, it, it, it makes you feel smart. Because <laughs> uh, one of the things about immersion that's so stressful is that you're thrust in an environment where you feel stupid for weeks 
and it and it it sucks. Uh, and so Middlebury has solved that in a way by by basically demanding that anyone who joins their program is willing to commit to being stupid for seven weeks. Yeah. Do you know how they do and that? Well, it's yeah. They 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 have a contract that is. Uh, <laughs> really. They have a contract that says if you speak one word that's not your target language, you get kicked out. <laughs> okay, but it works apparently. Yeah. It does work, and and because they're they're advertising on that front, because they're saying to everyone who's enrol who's enrolling, hey, you need to read this contract because this is what we do here. Then everyone who comes has opted into that philosophy, and so you have buy-in from all of the students, and that's the thing you need. You need everyone cooperating for this. Uh, if you have one student who's like, you know what, screw this, I'm just going to speak in English, um, the whole thing starts falling apart, and so. Uh, and that actually, that even affects some programs at Middlebury. Like even with a contract of that type, there are some of the Middlebury programs will sometimes get groups of students who are just like, screw this contract, we're just going to talk. And, and uh, while Middlebury has kicked out some people, they don't kick out everyone. Uh, and so there's points where that will, even that will fall apart. But nonetheless, Middlebury's created something that's really magical. Um, their German program is phenomenal, and uh, that was the first place I saw real success with language learning. Mm. You wrote a book called Fluent Forever. What inspired you to write that book? So the start of this thing was, was me doing Middlebury a couple times for German, reaching fluency in German, me going to Italy, trying to do an immersion for Italian, getting okay. I got to like B1 level in Italian. Um, and But it was because largely because uh, it was a short amount of time, but B... Um, a lot of the, like in Italy, I couldn't get people to continue, con consistently speak Italian with me. Everyone wants to speak English. Uh, and so I wanted to go back to Middlebury for French. I enrolled in the program. I didn't want to be in level one because Italian is close enough to French that I should be able to scra scrape by in level one and a half. So it's like a fast beginner course. Um, and I cheated on their test and uh, they had an online test and I went and Google Translate and I wrote an essay in French. <laughs> Uh, without knowing any French, and uh, I got enough points to get into level two. I did too well, and uh, I had three months to learn how to speak French, or else they would have caught me cheating. And so I created this system where basically I took, I already had pronunciation background, which was a, a good head start. Um, I saw that everyone was using Anki and, and spaced repetition to learn lots of language data quickly. Um, and I tried to imagine what it would be like to use Anki if I was in Middlebury. What, what would it be like if the only thing I could do was use French uh, in my flashcards? And so in combining those ingredients, I created a thing that let me not just learn some French so that I could get through a conversation, but by the time I arrived three months later, I could hold a real conversation in French and think in French. And so that entrance interview basically ended up popping me up to advanced level, level three instead of level two. And by the end of that summer, I had reached C1 fluency in French. And so that was five months from start to finish with seven weeks of immersion at the end. Um, and I knew that I had found something that was extremely important. And so I started writing about it. And that turned into a website that turned into some articles. The articles went viral. Um, and after the article went viral, that turned into a book proposal. I mean, I got some offers from a, I got an offer from a very large publisher um, found an agent in New York. I'm actually meeting her in two hours. I haven't seen her in a couple of years. Um, but uh, I, I got an agent. She pitched it uh, to a lot of publishers. We ended up selling it to Random House, and that, that's what turned into the book. Yeah. So what exactly did you do to get your French to, uh, what was it, a C1 level in, in how many months? In print. Um, all in all, it was five months. In five months. What, were, like, what are some of the, the key takeaways from, from your book? What was, like, what were some of the things that you do in order to... To achieve that. Um, you need to start with pronunciation. The fact that I had that background initially was was a lucky gift in my case, but it's it's a necessary ingredient. Um, if you have a language that is composed of sounds that you're not used to hearing, you will not remember words. If I tell you, your your listeners, you know, I usually use Hungarian because few people actually are familiar with it. Yeah. Although honestly, your audience is going to be different. <laughs> but uh, you know, if I if I say you know the Hungarian word for cameras, like most people will not hold on to that word for any number amount of seconds. Hmm. Uh, I already forgot what you said. If, right. Whereas <laughs> if I say, you know, the, the, the Martian word for cameras, magnogbog, like you're okay. So it's not that languages are composed of new sounds and uh, of new, new words. It's not that new words are hard. It's not that like languages, uh, new words could be long. Like that's not the problem. It's that they're composed of sounds that are 
new to you and you're not familiar with them and they you can't have that <laughs> they cannot sound foreign and weird or else you are so screwed when it comes to trying to remember anything or or comprehend anything so you need to start with pronunciation there's research showing how to fix that pronunciation issue really quickly um just by practicing pairs of similar sounding words so for spanish doma toma the d and the t uh, if you have some practice telling the difference between the D and T, you're going to become familiar with that within a week. Like it's not, it's not a long time. So use some tools, but those are the best tools you can use to become familiar with the sound system. Then start learning some simple words by connecting them to images in a spaced repetition system. Um, make sure that you are the one choosing those images. Um, this is where Rosetta Stone goes wrong. They just tell you, you know, the elephant is on the ball and they show you an elephant and they show you a ball. Uh, and you don't get to choose whether you care about elephants or balls or whether you even like those pictures. Um, so in my case, if you're going to be learning simple words, then you need to be seeing what those look like and choosing the ones that, that you want to use to remind yourself about those words. Um, and then you need to graduate over to sentences as rapidly as possible. And you need to turn those into fill in the blanks, uh, still in the target language, never with translations, except maybe on day one. Like you can use a translation, to understand what the sentence is, but on a day-to-day -day basis, the repetition, it needs to be in the target language. And that's the engine. That's the thing that pushes data into your head. And you use that engine wherever you can, and you continue pushing all as much data as you can. And by the time that you uh, can get, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, these, these styles of flashcards, so fully immersive, fill in the blank, all in the target language flashcards with images and sounds, ideally, with recordings of the sentences, um, that's going to jam enough data into your head that you can get through this language. And then once you're there, then it's just a matter of practicing the four skills uh, as, as you see fit. So people who actually care about reading, they should be reading some books. But people who don't care about reading and just want to speak, hire yourself a tutor and just speak. Like you don't, you don't need to master everything. You need to figure out what your needs are and then, and then focus on them. But like that's the easy part. Like that's, that's the part, that's the fun part. Like you, if you, if you care about reading, then, then you're going to want to read. <laughs> it's just having the tool set so that you don't just feel like I'm staring at this book and I have 10% comprehension. So what's the point? So um, the, the engine part, I think, is the, the, the big key takeaway from the book. Yeah, great. So you use this strategy to get your French uh, to a C1 level in five months. And then you wrote about this learning journey. You shared everything on your blog and those articles went viral. Do you have any idea why those articles went viral? Was it just very good content or that you do proper keyword research or um, mm. did you guest post or did you have like, was that very intentional or not really? I mean, you can't, I don't think you can do viral intentionally, but you can, you can certainly put effort in. I think the, um, the, the route towards getting that thing to go viral was that I had, uh, I wrote good content. Um, it was content that was new in the sense that people were not familiar with this approach to language learning. It felt different. Uh, the idea of telling people, hey, start with pronunciation felt like a very novel concept to people who are used to jumping into language classes and learning, hello, how are you? Um, and so that that was one ingredient is that the content feels novel and, and uh, there's an aspect of um, hope. Of, of it's inspirational in some sense to look at something and be like, oh, maybe maybe it's not that I'm terrible at languages. Maybe I just was doing it wrong. So that that's an you have to have an important like there was an important message which is a part of that in, in ingredient in the important ingredient in that recipe. Um, the next chunk was that I started identifying uh, traction. So I I was talking about this on the language learning subreddit. Um, so there was about you know twenty thousand people who were all interested in language learning, and I kept commenting about language learning with this approach. And I found that people kept upvoting it. It kept bumping up to the top of threads. I found, okay, well, this is interesting to people. Um, eventually, that I started drafting a comment that was, in, that was like a, a, a catch-all comment. It was a comment that was like, because the, the questions on language learning were the same every time. Like there's sometimes specialized questions, but for the most part, you get, hey, how do I learn French? Hey, how do I learn Spanish? How do I learn German? What's the best way to learn German? Is there a faster way to learn German? Like, it's all the same question. It's just, how do I learn a language? Uh, so I kept replying with this comment that became, instead of one paragraph, then like five paragraphs, and eventually like three pages long was this one comment that I kept refining. Um, and eventually someone uh, found it on, on the language learning subreddit, and they, they uh, cross-posted it. And they put it in Lifehacks, which is a larger subreddit. 
um, it became very popular. It, it jumped up to the top of that that uh, forum. Uh, and so suddenly I was at the top of the life hacks forum and I thought, you know, if it's getting so resonant with this group, I bet lifehacker.com would actually want this content. Um, but that, that pitching process was arduous, which I'm learning is just a part of this entrepreneurship thing, uh, where I didn't just send it to Lifehacker and then they went and put it up. I, I found every, every writer for Lifehacker and I emailed the first one and I said, Hey, here's this article and it's getting a lot of traction. And here's, you know, I I've seen that you've posted articles about X, Y, Z. And I thought, you know, maybe this is going to be a good fit for you. And then I got no response. And then I went to the second writer and did the same thing. And I got no response. And then eventually by the sixth writer, uh, that was Melanie, P Melanie Pinola. And she was like, okay, I'll post this tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and then I stayed up all night re-editing the article and, and adding images and, and just working my ass off. And I, I sent her the final draft in the morning and she posted it. And within two hours, I had a publisher offer. Um, so Whoa. like that's, that's how viral works is that you get lucky, but you also have to throw in a ton of, you have to do the grind. You have to just throw work at it. Well, and this uh, and was it needs to be well formatted work. And this was all because of one article in the end, which was optimized like over and over again, of course. So yeah. you basically you basically used Reddit as a way to somehow validate your article to make sure it's good, that it answers all the uh, all the questions that the audience has and that addresses all the pain yes. points. Um, they upvoted it, so you basically had the social proof on Reddit that you then used to reach out to life hackers, and there you just yes. keep kept going. You reached out to all the writers, all the uh, yeah, up until someone published it, and you said within two hours you got an offer from a publisher to write a book on yeah. that same topic. Correct. And what did you say? Yes, I will. I will do it. Or how was how was that uh, process? No. Okay. So that that process is also important. Uh, there's there's a few pieces here that actually are, are pretty relevant for your audience. So um, one of the things that I screwed up on initially is that the um, the only way for me to actually take advantage of the traction I got from Lifehacker, well, there's two ways. One, the book deal was a big deal, uh, and that was the main thing. But secondarily, I had a spike of traffic to my website. Uh, a, I had a website, <laughs> uh, which was key. Um, me having a website was was actually the, the main thing that led to the, um, not just the, uh, the uh, eventual business and the, the Kickstarter and all that stuff, but it's actually part of what led to uh, Random House accepting my book. You having a platform that actually has users who care about your content is really, really key. And so during this whole time when I'm posting on Reddit uh, about my like this comment, uh, that's not the only content I was creating. I was also creating these uh, articles about pronunciation, these videos about English pronunciation that I'm still using, actually. Uh, like the that kind of I was making a bunch of evergreen, really useful content for people. The problem with my website at that time is I didn't have a way to collect email addresses. Um, and it's so essential at this point now understanding this process to have had that. And so the only way I could collect email addresses at that time when Lifehacker went viral um, was that I had a contact form on my website. And on the bottom of that contact form, if someone sent me an email and also checked this box that said subscribe me to your mailing list, then I would get that mail that email address. So of the, I think, I mean, I ended up getting a, a, probably around 2 million views on that Lifehacker article. Um, I think that converted to my website at about, uh, I think it was about 10%. So I probably ended up getting around 200,000 visits from there. Oh, yeah. And I think like within I, the I, first week or month or? No, I mean, the 2 million was over time. I would say the first, I mean, the first day was like, uh, God, the first two hours was 50,000 views. Um, I think I think probably the first day was something like 200,000 views. And I, I believe the spike on my website was something like 25,000 views. Um, I had 25, let's say, let's say it was 25,000. I had 25,000 people come to my website. I think I ended up getting a hundred email addresses. Uh, that was a, that, like, that was a huge error. <laughs> uh, and you having, and, and that's not to say that every website needs to have, you know, a sudden pop-up that, you know, in the first three seconds is like, Hey, welcome, give me your email address. Like that, not that, but you having lead generation tools where basically you have some good content where you're like, Hey, you're reading this. Are you interested in more? Like I have this, this in-depth PDF that will tell you everything you need to know. And it's really good content and it actually is good. And it's free. Just give me an email address and I'll get it to you. 
get that thing. Like you need that thing. And I didn't have that thing. And so I collected 500 email addresses over, you know, a six month period. Um, instead of what would have been probably around 10,000 to 20,000 email addresses. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gabriel, for sharing that because, I mean, there's many people listening to this podcast who want to start out and we always say collect leads, start collecting email addresses from the beginning. And I think this was a classical, well, an extremely good example of someone who did not do it. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. So again, listener, collect emails from day one because just in case you go viral like Gabriel did, um, yeah, if he actually, if he had an opt-in form, he would have had thousands and thousands of email addresses that could have converted, or a percentage of that would probably have converted in, in sales, right? So start collecting email addresses from the beginning. And I think another lesson uh, from this interview so far is, for our, all our listeners, is maybe think about websites like Lifehacker that you could somehow reach out to and um, yeah, that could feature your article or share your article. As Gabriel said, it's not easy. You need to come with a really good piece of content. With You need to have some social proof, which Gabriel had at that time. But um, as you can see, you can really change the dynamics and, and transform your business. Are there more websites like that, Gabriel, you, that you know off the top of your head? Or I mean, Tim Ferriss is always, is, people will always talk about Tim Ferriss. Tim is hard to get to. Um, I think you kind of need to have something, uh, I think you already need to be relatively established before you can get to Tim. Um, one of the other issues with these websites is that they, they're not really interested necessarily in pre-made content, uh, which is to say, or, sorry, in content that's already been published. And so you need to have this balance between con like you, you need to have a website that has good content and yet you need to like hold back some of that content for these, these guest posts. And that's, that's a tricky balance. And I, I really don't know how to do that thing, uh, in terms of what's, what's the right answer to that, that balance question. Um, but yeah, I mean, life hacker, uh, I think, uh, like real simple, there's, you're looking for places where people, people who would download Headspace, uh, people who are interested in betterment, in productivity, that kind of thing. Um, that seems to be a good match to language learning. Um, I would say the other sort of markets of interest would be travel blogs. Um, but you got to have really, really serious travelers. Like most people who travel are not necessarily interested in learning languages. So uh, and that's not turned out to be our, our best customer base. Our best customer base so far has been people who are really interested in productivity. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, you went viral. You got an offer to publish your own book. When was that book published in the end? Um, it came out in 2014. The contract was signed in 2012. Okay, 2014. And then you came up with the idea to create your own app. What inspired you to create your own app? And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the process. Sure. Um, so there were two phases in the business. Um, the first one started in 2013 before the book came out, and the second one started in 2017 with the app. So um, in 2013, the, the issue with uh, having a book that says, hey, start with pronunciation, is that at, in 2013, there were no good resources for that. Um, their mimic method didn't exist yet. Um, I don't believe. I don't think they, at least I wasn't aware of mimic method at the time. Um, also, that didn't cover every language. And, um, and there was my blog that talked a little bit about the international phonetic alphabet, <laughs> uh, but not much more than that. Uh, if you really wanted help with your French diction or with your German diction or with Portuguese, like there wasn't like you just kind of had to go to YouTube and pray. <laughs> Uh, and that's not a good thing when you have a book that says, hey, step one, start with pronunciation. And then like when the, when you get to the how-to section, I can't have a how-to section that says, well, just uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go um, to Google. Yeah. Uh. So at that time, I, I decided I would make a Kickstarter to create pronunciation training resources. Um, that was the first of my Kickstarters. And uh, I, this idea of, you know, I need to learn Spanish. And so I want to have pairs like Doma and Toma. And I want a, a flashcard system to test me on that. Um, that wasn't super hard to make. Uh, that wasn't an enormous amount of effort. It was just like a decent amount of effort. I would say each of those things, <laughs> I, I estimated them to be like 10 hours of work. It ended up being hundreds of hours of work. But, but <laughs> uh, that was to make them packaged well enough for people. But um, 
So I figured, okay, if this is going to take me 10 hours of work to do for one language uh, and I want to do the top 12 languages, then that's going to take me 100 hour, 120 hours of work. Uh, I need to hire a bunch of native speakers. Mm, $10,000 should be enough. So I tried to do a Kickstarter for $10,000 in 12 languages. I ended up doing that Kickstarter because I went to the mailing list that I, that I had by that point, um, which at that point was 500 people, small. Um, I, I tried to raise 10,000. I ended up raising 96,000. 96,000. Um, this, was, this was for the first, for your first project, that pronunciation. Yes. This, this was in 2013. Yes. Um, and because it was doing better than I expected, I kept adding stretch goals. And so instead of 12 products, I ended up promising 65 products. Um, that took me four years to deliver. Uh, I had expected this to be a one-year project. It was a four-year project. Um, that's what started the business. Uh, that began, became me hiring a bunch of virtual assistants and people all over the world to help me get this job done. Um, and we started making a lot of money. Uh, we were, I think, after that first Kickstarter, we, I think the next year we raised $150,000 in, in product sales. Uh, then it was $200,000, then it was $250,000. So like people were buying these things. Um, but the products were they were good and they were not good. I mean, they were good in the sense that they were the best pronunciation training resources that are out there in terms of getting quick results fast uh, and good results. Um, but they were living inside of the Anki ecosystem. And I, I mean, I, I love Anki and also it is hard to use and it's very hard to teach people how to use it. Um, you need to be really, really motivated and you need to have good computer skills in order to really master that program. And like when I was teaching this method, the full method, uh, I would teach 12 hour workshops and eight hours of my workshop was learning how to use Anki well. And that is too much for the typical user. Uh, and so we, I, I, all of my pronunciation training resources were inside of Anki and I was getting a lot of pushback from people who were just like, I mean, I love your content and I love the concepts that you're talking about, but this computer thing, this Anki component is too hard for me. So I'm down, I'm done. This is over. Um, and I knew that. Like I, I it was it's that was a constant frustration is that I could I could teach this to people and they would be inspired, but they would stop. But they wouldn't stop because of the language component, they would stop because of the computer thing. And like that was really frustrating to me. So um really as early as uh as soon as the book came out, I was I was drawing up uh wireframes for the app I wanted to build. Um, that would just teach language. Like the reason why Anki is complex is not because Damien Elms has made up, done anything wrong. It's because he's creating a platform for teaching anything. It's just a spaced repetition platform for all knowledge. <laughs> uh, that cannot be simple. You can't teach all knowledge in a simple way. Um, but languages are simple like the content like yes there's all these complicated things and there's these grammar rules and all this stuff but ultimately every language is composed of sentences just which are all composed of strings of words that are separated whether or not you use spaces or not doesn't matter it's all chunk 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 um and then every word is composed of a bunch of phonemes and some kind of writing system generally if you have a written language that's it it's all the same format Different data, different like there's there's you know the everything we can possibly think can be can contained in languages, but ultimately it's just sentences made of words made of phonemes. Like that's it. And so because the data is all formatted exactly the same, because you're not teaching anatomy and having pictures and then teaching geogra uh, geography and then teaching geometry and then teaching like the the you know names of states and like all these and, and then math formula, because it's all like those are all completely different formats, but Language is always an identical format across every single language. And for that reason, you can make something that's way simpler. That, that instead of having an eight-hour uh, learning curve, you can have like a three-minute learning curve or even maybe shorter. So as early as 2014, I started drafting app designs for this thing. Um, I, I couldn't start it until I finished the previous Kickstarter. Um, and so I spent my four years to really finish that thing, even as, on, on as a side project, I was drafting out this app. Um, and then in 2017 is when we really started the is when we started the second Kickstarter. We raised uh, one, we raised five hundred fifty thousand dollars in the first month, um, and then we spent the next uh, year continuing to raise via 
Indiegogo at this point. We moved from Kickstarter to Indiegogo, yeah. and we raised another 1.2 million that way. So you raised 1.7 million for that app? Yes. Well, well first of all, congratulations. Um, yeah, my question would be, okay, 1.7 million, whoa, that's quite a lot of money to spend on the app, right? It's, it's not. Really? So, t- so tell us, what, what, I mean, yeah, what, what are some of the people who want to build a language app, what should they think about? Because some people might think, okay, 10,000 euros, $20,000, you know, I, I can do it, should be enough. But yeah, share, us, share with us some of the lessons that you have learned and how can you spend so much money on, on an app? <laughs> don't <laughs> we didn't spend 1.7 million okay. uh so we spent we spent uh so far three and a half million three um three and a half and million. we're and we're maybe one third the way through <laughs> okay so let's, let's get a sense of scale here so it's which is really important for this app thing because it's stuff that i didn't know um when i was when i started this app um my thought was okay i'm just gonna have i'm gonna hire a development house I don't need to get programmers. I'm going to hire some, like a, a group of programmers. I'm going to get a bid on this. I'm going to look at maybe, uh, ultimately, I looked at 60 different development houses. Um, they all propo- did, sent in proposals about this project. Um, I ended up uh, getting about 10 different bids on the project specifically, um, meaning that like, I, I gave them the full, here's everything I want to build. How much will it cost me to do all of this? Um, those bids ranged between $100,000 and $600,000 to do the whole project. Um, actually, I think someone gave me a bid for like $60,000 or something, a Ukrainian firm. Um, I ended up shortlisting that to about three companies. I hired two of those companies to do proof of concept work. For uh, one of them, I spent $10,000 on proof of concept work. The other one, I spent $25,000 on. Hmm. Um, proof they of concept? Did the work. What, what does that mean? So it's, it's how do we find the smallest component that we can use uh, just so I can see what is it like to work with you? And can we, can we even do the things that I think we can do? So one of the key p- components of this method is, for instance, um, interacting with Google Images. Um, specifically, me having a sentence that says, you know, the dog chases the cat and me being able to tap on the word dog and it immediately searches for dog images or me searching or me tapping on dog chases and I can have a bunch of images of dogs chasing things or dog chases cat and me seeing dogs chasing cats. So I wanted to have something that I could just tap on tap on words and immediately get image search results without having to type in D-O-G. Um, and I wanted to do that in two languages simultaneously. So um, I knew I wanted that, but I didn't know if it was possible. Uh, and so one of the projects that I hired one of the companies for was do it. Uh, let me spend $10,000 and you show me that I can actually do this component that is a necessary part. Um, and so in another, the other company I did, uh, I forget what the proof of concept we did there, but a sort of similar thing of let's, let's do a little tiny project. Um, I worked with both companies. Uh, the, the more expensive company, um, ended up being a much better product in their proof of concept. Everything about it was, was really beautiful. Um, and so, and they had a reputation for delivering, delivering on their goal, on what they say, uh, sometimes over-delivering. So they'll make a project that they'll bid 600000 and then it will, um, their reputation is that it would, uh, you know, they'll get it done for $600,000, but you'll get a much better product than you, you even wanted in the beginning. Like their designers will improve on your ideas. So I hired them. Uh, after we, we did so well on the Kickstarter, I said, great, we're going to use the $600,000 company. Um, but we, uh, we started that project and, uh, it is also now, now I know in this, in having done this thing, um, if you hire a development house to, to do a project for you and they give you a bid, that bid has nothing to do with how much you're going to pay. Um, and what I'm learning is actually, it's about like three to 10 times more money. Is there um, a, and yeah, continue. Uh, no, uh, go go on with your question. Yeah. Is there a way to better control y- your budget? Like, are there things that you have learned in this journey? Like, if you had to start the whole project all over again, would you do it the same way, or would you say, "Listen, six hundred thousand dollars—that's what I have, but that's the limit for that. I want to have a working app." Or is that unrealistic? 
It's not unrealistic, but it produces bad quality. Um, one of the issues that, that goes on is that you could, there's two ways to hire app development houses. One is to do it hourly, and the other one is to do it with fixed price contracts. Um, if we did a fixed price contract and we said this is going to be a $600,000 project, then we would get our app done for $600,000, but it would have been a junk app. Um, meaning that the programmers would know, like they're, they're not interested in getting paid for nothing or getting or working indefinitely on a project. And so they will cut corners because they have to, uh, they need to like get to the next project. Um, and so if, if a programmer has a choice between building something out such that it can stand the test of time, such that you've, you've built a review system and then, you know, tomorrow I want, I don't just want a review ses uh, system. I want to know, Hey, how many flashcards do I remember? Like I want to see see user progress, like Anki does, where I see, hey, I've, I've I have you know 100 flashcards that are mature and you know, 100 flashcards that are just new to me. Um, then the programmer who does that really really well, knowing knowing the whole uh, future of this program, um, that will not be a lot of work because they've already done the work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's also but about the, the foundations just, of the of the app. It's about building good foundations. And so um, there's, a, there's a concept known as technical debt where you can get a product out faster as long as you pay the debt later. And, and it costs twice as much. So if you get this $600,000 project and you say this is a fixed price contract, that's all I'm going to spend, then you are likely uh, all of that extra money that you're saving, uh, you're going to have to pay off twice as much later on to fix all the problems that came in in the first place. So as soon as, for instance, Apple updates from OS, uh, iOS 12 to iOS 13, and your whole app falls apart and stops working, um, you will need to spend, you know, who knows, hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix your app. Whereas if you really spent the time to do it right, then hmm, that's like a week of work and we fixed it and we're good. So. It's that's the balance that you're trying to weigh. You're trying to say how much do we, how much quality do we want now versus later. And even with the development house that we we hired, which is one of the best development houses in the world, um, even by spending uh, doing this hourly and really asking them to do good work and and having oversight, having my own CTO look at this thing, um, even in all those cases, we are still paying technical debt today. Uh, a year later. Uh, Every day, we are paying technical debt for some of the, the shortcuts that were taken during the app development. And these are not bad programmers. These are not bad people. They did good work. But they were not building for, for a five-year project. They were building for, let's get this project done. I guess you need to find a balance, right? On the other hand, you don't want to release the product in 10 years from now. It, you need to get it out there, you know, anytime soon. But you also yep. don't, don't want to build that technical debt that you're, you're talking about. So how do you find the that answer. balance? The, the the true answer to your question, like like in terms of being able to go back and redo it or not, um, I like I think given the constraints of my particular problem set, which were that I had promised thousands of people that they would get an app within like six to twelve months, which was the estimate, actually much bigger than the estimate that the app dev house gave me, um, versus I didn't want to spend all of the money immediately. Um, Given those those problem constraints, the idea of hiring a development house and just having them give them a first product was the right choice, in my opinion. Much more expensive, but it was the right choice. Um, the less expensive route is that you hire a development a developer, and honestly, uh, the better route is that you that developer is one of your founders in your company. You really you you want that. You want to have that. You this is not just you as a non technical person paying people uh, that is a much cheaper thing when you plus a, a, a programmer are working on a thing together. Um, then you either decide that you and that programmer together are just going to build this whole thing yourselves. Um, that will be the cheapest route by far. Um, or you decide that that programmer is good enough as a leader to hire additional programmers and help you build an internal team. Um, and that's what we ended up doing at this point. We have, uh, I think, four programmers, four testers, uh, a project manager, and a, a user interface person. And so we have 10 people on a development team. Um, and that internal team is pr producing product that is uh, phenomenal. Like, they are, they are able to do that. But it took us five months to find our first programmer. 
Um, the idea of you being able to get a development team that actually has good talent on it quickly is not a real thing, uh, unless you have so much money that you can hire recruiters to do it for you. Yeah. So the key here so, is really to build your own team. You it, to save money, you have to build your own team. But there is, uh, if you're talking about good quality programmers, you either have to uh, find people who are willing to work for equity, so they're willing to say, "This is my company," and so I'm willing to work for below market rates. Or you're willing to pay market rates, uh, which is to say a lot. I mean, programmers are more than $100,000 a year for really good programmers. Um, or you're willing to go overseas, uh, pay, pay programmers who are willing to take a lot less money, uh, but you are risking that those programmers are not good enough in some sense to give you a product that will stand the test of time. And so then, then you're paying technical debt all over again because you're not, you've not chosen the right talent. Um, generally, programmers know their worth. If someone is so good that they would be able to work for Google or for Microsoft and produce just beautiful, beautiful code, they can get $120,000, $150,000 a year from someone. Why are, they, why are they working for you for $40,000? It's because they can't do that other thing. Yeah. So there are not really any shortcuts here. I mean, there's no shortcuts. I, I also run a translation agency. And like five years ago, we decided to develop our own. Um, let's call it a CRM system. So we thought, yep. okay, you know what? We go to India, I spend a month in India, I visit all these IT companies there. I don't know too much about IT myself. I'm not a coder or anything. And we found this company. I thought they were capable of doing the job and they paid, paid them like, I don't know, 10 or $15 per hour. Um, but it took, <laughs> it was not very good quality. It took so much time. I, I almost went full-time into this project myself because i needed to give them feedback all the time and we yes. spend we ended up spending so much money um yeah so that basically confirms what you are saying here so yeah basically what you're saying is that there is no shortcut here and that a developer is usually is worth what they're charging yes you you, know what you pay for in all of these circumstances there are no shortcuts and uh it's always expensive and it's always extremely expensive and it will always take you at least twice as long as you expect and cost at least twice as much but sometimes up to five to ten times as much um app development is is no joke i mean this thing uh i i like if someone one of the things that has been a, a sort of theme of the last I don't know, a year or two when people reach out to me for feedback of just saying, hey, I have this cool idea and I want to build a company and I want to build an app, um, is I need to destroy dreams at some point. Uh, it's, it's, it has become part of my job. Is not, I mean, I don't want to shit on people's dreams. <laughs> Excuse the French. Uh, like, I, I think this, like the thing I'm doing, I don't regret what I'm doing, for instance, either. But it is not easy uh, and it is so expensive that you need to know that reality going into it. Um, I got lucky in the sense of this Kickstarter was successful enough that I was able to raise capital in addition to that and actually fund this thing. Um, but if you came into the, if I came into this thing and I had, you know, $300,000 from a Kickstarter and I was like, holy crap, I can do this. I have this estimate from this company. It says it's going to be $200,000. I have $300,000. Great. I have all the money I need. This is going to be super. Uh, I would have ended up with a thousand, you know, a few thousand people who had no app and I would have wasted all their money and it would be over. Uh, and so I got a good set of circumstances that let me actually execute on this thing. But people need to know going in that, that app development is no joke. This thing is a really, really expensive endeavor. Yeah. So I thought that spending one or two million on a language app is a lot of money. But you, but you actually, what this, your journey here or what you're saying is demonstrating is that it's actually not. And um, I mean, even if you spend two million, your app is ready. You still need to promote it, right? You still need to spend money on marketing. Oh, the, mar the marketing thing's a whole other thing. Like, like we, when we raised that one point seven million, um, that through through Indiegogo and Kickstarter, that wasn't revenue. I'm oh, sorry, that wasn't profit. That was revenue. Um, we spent four hundred thousand dollars on marketing that, uh, and those were good metrics. Which is to say that that in the Indiegogo phase in, in two thousand eighteen, uh, we. Every $50 we spent would get us someone who would buy uh, buy $150 worth of product. And so we had a three-to-one ratio in our ad spend, and so we spent it. We spent $400,000, and we got $1.2 million of, of, of new purchases at that point. Was, was this like uh, Facebook that, ads or social media these ads? Were, or, oh, okay. These were Facebook ads, a little bit of Google, but mostly Facebook. Um, and we had an agency at that time. And also, like the, the lesson that keeps coming back is anytime you outsource something, you will get a better product if you, you have it in-house. 
Um, but then you have a responsibility to that team. So the out the outsourced team was a very good team. Like they were known in the industry for being great, and they were not as good as someone who was on the inside. Because the person on the inside who is in your company, they are someone who cares about this product deeply because it's their livelihood. But someone who's on the outside, then you're one of their 10 or 15 clients. Like they just they can't care as much. Uh, but anytime you hire someone on the inside, that person, you now have a responsibility to that person's livelihood in life. Like you, you need to keep them going. You can't just use people and then throw them away. So it's that balance is again, it's, it's a constant balancing act. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general, because we might have a few listeners who, um, might have an idea. They want to start their own Kickstarter campaign. Um, what are some of the commitments that you have to towards Kickstarter, like after you you generate all that revenue. So it's not that they transfer 1.7 million to your bank account, they say good luck and all the best with it, or how does that work exactly? Like do they do they check on you? Do they check what you're doing? Um, do you have any commitment? No, there's, there's, there's no real commitment. Um, the commitment you have is to the people that, that paid you their money, which is to say um, they you have a, a moral commitment to those people and you also have a Kickstarter, in some sense, you're, you're leveraging your social capital. Um, you have an ability to say, I am a credible person and I have executed on things in the past and I am someone who is worthy of, of trust. Um, there's no legal requirement past that point. Uh, not really. Uh, if, if you do a Kickstarter and you raise $2 million and you're like, hey, peace out, I'm going to Maui, ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> you can kind of do that. Like there's little that the backer, backers can actually do. But you're never going to come back and do a second Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, I think some people have tried, but you're not going to do that thing successfully uh, unless you pick up a whole new different audience. So um, you have a resource in those people. Those people are the your super fans. They are, they are uh, early adopters. They are people who are on the forefront of, of, uh, of technology in some sense. They, they are looking for things that are truly new and they're willing to take risks on that front. Um, when we... like. Our first equity raise, when we sold stock in our company, we sold stock to those people. We went to those people and we said, hey, are there any accredited investors here? Uh, and that brought in another $1.25 million. And that's where the real money came from in terms of really starting this app was that equity round were those people. Uh, and those people also produced the network that, produced, that, that allowed me to find the next round of funding. Um, so those people can be enormously valuable to you, but you need to keep them happy and they have very, very high, uh, standards. Um, Kickstarters are always like, I think 75% of Kickstarters are significantly late. Uh, I, I tried to pad this one out and make it so that I had enough time to not be late. Nope. Still late. Um, and the moment that you are a second late or that you deliver on something that is not quite what they want, or, uh, they're just sad in a given day, uh, they will be really mad at you. <laughs> uh, and you managing those relationships is a really, really important part of you keeping, uh, the most valuable people in your network happy. So there is no legal requirement, but keeping those people happy and keeping them updated on the very least a monthly basis is really, uh, the sort of expectation or the, th the thing that will keep them at, either at bay or, or pleased with you uh, and you being extremely transparent with them and saying, Hey, this is what's going on. Um, this is why this is going, uh, going later than expected. This is why you're not getting the quality you wanted. I'm working on it. Uh, and you showing them the results of, of your labors. Um, that's a thing that, that will keep those people happy for you. Yeah. So the key is really to be transparent and keep that trust with the people who support you in the first place. So you raised yes. 1.7 million again, um, what was the uh, initial amount you were aiming for? Um, so, I mean, I was aiming honestly for that number. Um, the I was aiming for well, I was aiming to pass a million. Um, but the the goal I set was two hundred fifty thousand. Um, Kickstarter. I, I have an article about this that, that uh, you can look like. What are what are the lessons learned from my first Kickstarter? Uh, Fluent forever, and you find it. Um, but basically. The way that you use Kickstarter is if you need a million dollars, you do not set a goal for a million dollars. Um, you need to set the goal for what your audience can theoretically support, uh, can fund within one or two days. Uh, maybe within a week at most. But what you want, like the only way this thing really works is that um, you show momentum very, very early. 
Um, you show enough momentum that you have succeeded at your goal. And if your goal is like you want to raise $10,000 and you say, okay, well, fine, I'll set my goal for $10. I made my goal in one minute. Like no one cares. So you need to set a goal that is actually uh, is in some sense impressive enough for press to care about. Yeah. So that, that's so, how you do it. You, you, you leverage that extra attention you get once you reach that goal in order to get even a bigger, um, to reach even more people. Yes, that's exactly it. It's an audience multiplier. You need to have an audience ahead of time. You need to have that audience meet a goal that is impressive. And then you need to take that, that fact that you met that goal so quickly to press so that they can then help you get the rest of the new audience. Yeah, that's a very interesting strategy. Are there any other things or actions that you think have contributed to, your, to the success of this Kickstarter campaign? Obviously, you already had a book. Um, you already had a product. People knew about you. You had this website, so you already had quite some social proof. You were covered on, yes. or featured on this website. Do you think that contributed to the success of that campaign as well? And were there maybe some other things that helped you reaching those goals? Um, I think that if we're talking specifically about language entrepreneurship, what you need to have are people who are willing to stand up for you who are not you. Um, you yourself being able to say, hey, this is really great. Look at me uh, is not as valuable as you being able to show five or 10 people who are just nailing it and are able to say i'm nailing it and this is why because this person gave me this tool um you need to be able to have a story if, when it comes to kickstarter there's all sorts of rules not not there's unwritten rules or i've written some of them down but there's rules about what people expect to see in the video um you need to have a video that has it, it can't just have a good idea it needs to have a good idea that has to happen right now And it needs to have a risk of if you don't if you don't give the money now to fund this Kickstarter, this whole beautiful idea, it goes in the garbage. It will never happen again. This is the one moment where it's possible. Um, it needs to have uh, there need to be rewards that are really, really appealing that feel like they're going to go away if you don't jump on them now. Um, there, there's all these little pieces that need to be in place for something to really feel like this is a compelling story that I should open my uh, put in my credit card for right now. Yeah. How do you learn about these things? Do you figure it out yourself or analyze other successful Kickstarter campaigns? Is there information out there that our listeners can go to learn more about uh, how to launch a su successful Kickstarter campaign or crowdfunding? Um, that, at this point, all of basically everything that I can think of is, is in that article about lessons learned from my first Kickstarter. And so that's a thing that people should read. Um, I, I talk about where my sources are for that data. Mostly that I, I hired a consultant for Kickstarter in my first one. Um, who Jesse Jeanne, uh, who I don't know if she's doing consulting anymore. Um, but, uh, but the lessons that I picked up from her, I put in that article as well. Uh, she was the one to come up with these formula for like, what, you know, what is the right video? I don't know where she got her information from. Yeah. Well, great. So I will add that link in the, in the show notes. And I'm also going to turn this interview into a written form, into a blog post. We'll make sure that the link is there as well. So for the listeners, make sure to go there if you're planning on launching a Kickstarting campaign. Yeah, Gabriel, are there any other tips for people out there who, who want to launch their own app, who want to develop an app or who want to launch a Kickstarting campaign? I mean... If you're going to do the app thing, then I mean, you need to know what you're getting into. And uh, to that end, you are likely going to need to raise funds, uh, meaning have investors, understand what that means to have investors and have a responsibility to them um, and understand how much work it is to actually do fundraising. Uh, I've spent the last, I would say, eight months uh, traveling the country, doing pitch events, um, meeting investors. I think I've pitched this thing around 300 times. Um, I've... And I've, I've gotten one VC check at this point, which is now allowing me to get more VC checks. Um, this, this is a, not just a full-time job. Uh, and this is certainly not a side gig. Uh, like this is, you know, it, at the point where you're really trying to build a company uh, as opposed to, I just kind of want to make an app. Like those are very, very different things. And it's hard to build an app unless you're trying to build a company. Um, Like the thing I care about is getting this app to to look the way that I want it to look and, and have all the features and, and, and empower people in the way I want it to, to empower people. But the route there is building a whole corporation. Like, <laughs> uh, And I think generally when people come into this thing and they have a cool idea and they want to build an app and they don't see that, that the, the steps it takes to get there may involve building a whole foundation that is bigger than they expected to build. So uh, just know, know what you're getting into. Um, That, that would be the big thing that I would, I would say. And as for the Kickstarter, like launching a Kickstarter 
project? Any, any tips um, for people there? Check the, out your blog post, of course. Any other Definitely things? check out the blog post. But the, the main thing with Kickstarter is that you're, you can't, as I said, it was an audience multiplier. You take an audience and it makes it bigger. Um, but if you don't have an audience yet, it's not going to make anything bigger. You can't multiply zero by something and get something. Um, and so you need to build the audience first with these kinds of things we talked about earlier, about having lead generation on a website, having a website in the first place. Um, having good content and, and having guest posts that push people towards a website so that you get that email address. Um, you need to start with email addresses of people who really like your content before you can actually do a successful Kickstarter. Yeah, so it's really, I guess, yeah, it's really the art of leveraging one company asset that you have in order to get the next one. So you start yes. your first asset was your learning journey, basically. You turn that into yes. a blog post, you put that on Reddit. From there to Lifehacker, that turned into the book offer. The book offer turned into um, your first product. And that then turned into the, the Kickstarter project. Yep. Um, the first project that you did, and then you did a second Kickstarter launch, which resulted in even more. And now you're using that as social proof, as an asset to actually reach out to even more investors to make, to make this whole thing even, even bigger. Exactly right. Yeah, well, and you don't you don't get to skip any of those steps. You can't just jump straight to the app part. You need to have you need to build the audience ahead of time. Yeah, well, Gabriel, thank you very much for sharing your journey, sharing all the wisdom, sharing all the things that that you have learned on this um, well on this journey, building a multi million dollar empire because that's really what it is, literally. It's a real pleasure. Want to learn how you can grow your language business or maybe meet us at one of our upcoming events? Then go to our website, langpreneur.com. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode.